Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Hamley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am well, thank you. We've got a couple of interesting things to talk about today. Some of you who read my newsletter last week may have noticed that uh, there's been some movement on some ideas for health care reform in Congress. Uh, Chip Roy introduced his Personalized Care Act, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But we're also going to talk about another piece from Kaiser, or uh, rather KFF Health News is the new name for uh, Kaiser Health News. And uh, they they detailed a couple of different uh, opposing ideas for health care reform that are both coming from the White House and also from uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. So we're going to talk about those today. So the first one, Ron, let's talk about um, what one of the wants that Biden has, and that is reforming short-term policies, uh, short-term plans. So I guess the first question would be, so for people that don't un- the people that don't know or understand, what are the short-term plans, and what's their intended purpose? So originally, their intended purpose was to provide a um, some form of health insurance for people who are, let's say, transitionally uninsured. Uh, let's say you're between jobs, um, or you know you've got this period of a, a short period of time where you know you're not going to have uh, employer covered insurance or whatever. And these plans sort of fill that gap, if you will. Um, and originally, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, they were limited to, I believe, three months. Um, that you mm-hmm. could have that coverage, um, and then they sort of had to end. That, and so it was really the, sort of the stopgap measure. Um, and the short-term plans, because they were meant to be a stopgap measure, really didn't have uh, didn't comply well with the requirements of the Affordable Care Act as far as the, all the things they had to cover or no pre-existing. Most of them don't cover things like pregnancy or deliveries. Mm-hmm. Again, it was it was sort of say, well, gosh, if something really horrible happens to me during this time, I need to have some coverage. Um, after the uh, uh, the Trump administration took office, they changed the rules around it and allowed them to be 364-day plans that could renew up to four times, right. which really turns it into you know, a long-term coverage. Because you get, basically, you could get coverage for up to four years with one day every year where you technically aren't covered. And that's sort of the, how they got around the idea of it not being a an actual insurance plan or under the uh, ACA coverage rules. Right. And now, is what? how is this different or is it different from when you leave your employer and they offer to keep you on their insurance by b- basically buying into it? Is this the same type of policy that that would be? Well, what you're talking about is COBRA, um, which is a law that allows anybody who has uh, employer-based coverage and who who leaves that coverage can buy that COBRA insurance, depending on why you're uh, you're uncovered, it's 18 or 36 months. Um, The problem with COBRA for a lot of people, and if you think about it, if you left your employer, you got fired or terminated, laid off, whatever, um, you probably don't have a lot of income, is mm-hmm. COBRA is very expensive yeah. because in essence, the insurance companies can charge you a certain premium above what that costs the employer in order to buy that COBRA. So it's very, very expensive. These short-term plans were designed to say, well, you need something, but it's going to be a whole lot cheaper than COBRA. Right. So COBRA is still there and everybody can do it. It's just most people can't afford it. Right. And those reforms you mentioned about extending them to 364 days and being renewed several times that took place during the Trump administration. Uh, yes. President Biden, uh, he's called these uh, some of these plans junk insurance. Do, do you think that's a fair uh, way to, of describing them after they were reformed in the Trump administration? 
Um, I, I think in some ways it is. Um, now, again, if you were doing this as somebody saying, look, I've got a couple of months until I'm going to get um, new insurance, and I just don't want to be completely uncovered, well, then it's it's not really junk insurance. It's providing you some level of coverage. Mm-hmm. It's different if you're now using it for multiple years because the problem is, and this gets back to the whole issue of health insurance, there's really two pieces to it. There's how much the premium cost for what you're buying and then what it covers. Right. You know, I often tell people, it'd be like this. If I wanted to say to my auto insurance, and if they could, hey, I want a $30,000 deductible and my car is only worth $30,000, well, then the premiums are really cheap. Right. I don't have any coverage. Yeah. Um, now, it's different if I say I want every single dollar, including a rock chip to my windshield to be covered. Mm-hmm. Well, then that premium is going to be pretty expensive. And yep. people sort of purchase auto insurance in the middle. They figure out what they can afford as far as deductible. Mm-hmm. Well, these short-term plans largely leave an awful lot of the health expenses onto the consumer. And, and the, the, the gripe against them, and why Biden calls them junk insurance, is people buy them many times thinking they really have insurance and then they get sick and realize that, wow, most of this bill I'm going to have to pay for and I can't pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, some of these reforms uh, have been criticized by other progressives and Democrats. Um, one thing that they're talking about by reforming it now would be to change the definition of short term to end of, at a maximum of four months. Uh, and then the idea that they would go on to an affordable care act plan or Medicaid. Although I suppose that one, one thing that, you know, a, a compromise solution might be if the people, if certain people want to keep these longer term short plans, you could say stay on it until the open enrollment period uh, comes up. What, what do you think about that? Well, for, um, and I think it's sort of six and one after the other. Sure. I mean, you know, if you said stay on it until the next open enrollment, then what you're saying is at maximum, um, it's going to be, um, you know, a year. Right. Um, or a little less, one day less than a year, if you think about it that way. Um, now, then the question becomes, if you say, well, or until the next enrollment period, um, well, what about somebody who loses their job one month before the enrollment period? Under Biden's plan, he would say, well, you still get four months and then you flip on. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where, to me, that's sort of, you know, that's sort of arguing over details. Right. Um, the real, to me, the real issue on these is can, should they be able to be used for four years right. or two years as opposed to some sort of a, you know, whether it's 11 months or four months, some sort of a short-term event. And I'm pretty sure anyway that both the ACA and Medicaid have special enrollment periods if you lose your job or in your employer's yeah, insurance well, anyway. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this, this idea of an annual enrollment period for the ACA, there are things like if I lose my job, I get to enroll right mm-hmm. away. If, if there's, we have a, well, they call them qualifying events. For example, is if, if I get my insurance through my spouse and my spouse dies, okay, well, now that's a qualifying event. I don't have to wait till the next open enrollment right. period. Right, right. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that I think I know the answer to, but I have to ask anyway, uh, and I'll ask it for all three of these. How likely do you think that this will be reformed before the next election cycle? Uh, it won't. Okay. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's not going to get, you know, none of these things are really have any chance of happening. And all of them, including Biden's thing, are really designed around um, a campaign yeah. argument. 
Mm-hmm. I tried to do this and the other side stopped me. And I tried to fix this and the other side stopped me. And so, yeah, it's not going to happen. Not when the Republicans control the House. Um, he may be able to do this through um, an executive order and then that'll be challenged. And I don't know the legalities of whether he can get away with it there, but mm-hmm. that's the only reason, way it's happening is if he does this through an executive order. Right. Well, let's talk about the other side. Uh, the House uh, has passed the Choice Arrangement Act. Uh, which would allow more self-employed individuals and businesses to get together with association health plans. Um, same thing we'll, that we started with with the with the short-term stuff. What are the association health plans, and and what is their intended purpose? So right now, the law allows businesses who are in a like business to form these associations. So, you know, the national realtors. Okay, can form an association because they're all in the same business. Mm -hmm. And if you pay into this association or whatever, that association can um, shop for insurance for their association members. And then the members can either choose to buy that insurance or not. And theoretically, what it does is it gives them more purchasing power. If you think about it, and and realtors are are one of the examples that people use because a lot of times those are solo or small groups, if you will. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it allows them to get some of the benefits of being part of what is a larger employer and hopefully better rates, more flexibility with, um, you know, with uh, the insurance companies. Now, the downside is um, because you get to be considered sort of a large employer, you get around some of the Affordable Care Act requirements, and -hmm. those can be things like some coverage requirements. you also can get, if you become sort of a self-funded association, you get outside of some of the state laws that mm-hmm. only apply to fully insured business, which are designed to protect consumers. Now, no one's really worried about the Realtors Association running afoul of solvency or some of these things because they would have other you know, downsides to doing it as far as reputation and their industry, et cetera. But that's what these associations do is they allow, you know, groups of right now like businesses to form into an association. Right. Um, Generally, as an economist, do you think that this is better um, for our healthcare economics, for our healthcare economy, or do you think it kind of hurts it more? Well, there's a part of me as an economist who likes the idea of, you know, um, free trade, et cetera, and, and these kind of environments. Now, healthcare is a bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the things we always have to be careful about, about not just allowing the free market um, to, to run its course. In the free market, if not everybody can get a sports car, that really isn't that damaging. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In the free market, if some people can't get healthcare, that's different. Right. Um, and, I do have a concern about the Health Choice Act about, first of all, I think it's designed around getting more small businesses um, outside of some of the ACA requirements. And it has some very serious concerns about solvency and protection under the uh, under state law, et cetera. So it, it, it makes me a bit nervous about what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. And it'll do really nothing material to solve our healthcare problems. I mean, right. you know, this is, and the Biden thing too is it's band-aids on bullet wounds. Yeah. You know, uh, the Biden thing on these sort of short-term plans right now, about 1.6 million people are covered by these short-term plans. That's in a population of 330 million people. Yeah. It's I don't almost think no that's one. our problem. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. 
one of the other things that the Choice Act does, or the Choice Arrangement Act, um, is solidifying a Trump era regulation uh, that allows employers to provide workers with tax-free contributions to shop for their own insurance as long as it is an ACA-qualified plan. Uh, this has also been known as the Health Reimbursement Account. Have that has that really worked well, or do you think that most employers are not bothering to do that? It, it really hasn't worked well. Most employers aren't really bothering to do that, and, and especially because of that last piece, that as long as it's an ACA plan. Well, if it's an ACA plan, there really isn't as much advantage to letting the individual employee shop for that plan. Mm-hmm. It actually works better functionally if the group just buys the plan. They get right. a better rate on it. They, you know, and these ACA qualified plans really are fairly homogenous. You know, I mean, to to a large degree, if your employer picks Blue Cross over United, it it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Right. Um, so, I, I don't think that piece of it. Again, it's 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 a small piece and. It- um, there might be a couple of people that benefits, but it's not going to change society dramatically. And that's what I was going to say. It seems it seems like because it's such a small, you know, why is it being focused on so prominently in this particular healthcare plan as a, as a way to fix fix our healthcare? I, I find that interesting. Well, I, and I think I, and I'm I'm now giving my assessment of it. I think it's so that somebody can say without getting into the details of the argument, I tried to give individuals mm-hmm. control over their health care. I mean, I can almost see the ad or the stump speech or the, you know, the debate stage. You know, we tried to give individuals control over their own health care and, and the liberals just want government control of everything, which yeah. is both statements are wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, now, and again, I'm not saying that, you know, that the Democrats have a great plan themselves right now. All of this is political theater. But that's what I think it's being focused on because it'll play well on a stump speech. Yeah. Well, uh, we haven't seen a idea of a comprehensive approach for a very long time. And in fact, the the, the, big, the only real plan I've seen for Republicans, at least in, in recent years, and it completely went away around the 2020 election, was repeal and, a place, repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. You don't hear that at all anymore um, from anyone. Although one commentator pointed out in this piece from KFF Health News that it seems like that with the the Choice Arrangement Act, it's trying to chip away at the edges a little bit. Although, as we've discussed before, the ACA is not going anywhere. It's been it's been upheld by multiple courts, including the Supreme Court. And Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of interesting to see people chipping away at it when we don't even talk about repeal and replace anymore. Yeah. And and I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, repeal and replace is gone because of two reasons. One uh, replace with what, and that never had answered. And the second is, and and, why McCain shot it down. Right. Um, is okay. If you, if you're going to repeal, you got 16 million people covered in the Affordable Care Act and however many extra millions of people covered by Medicaid expansion, mm-hmm. you've just created wonderful fodder for the opposition to go to any of those people and say, they just took away your health care. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, most elections aren't decided by that many votes. So, yep. um, yeah, I think that, you know, that's why we're not seeing it. But so let's just try to chip away at it and let's try to chip away at it in a way that 
um, sounds like I'm trying to resolve our healthcare issues and sounds like I'm trying to help the small guy or the individual or all that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's really political theater. Now, I should point out that the Choice Arrangement Act has been ha- passed by the, the House. Uh, it is certainly dead on arrival in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Biden's policies, we, we talked about you know whether or not you'd see it in, uh, in, in Congress, but it's definitely a, uh, or, or rather an executive order. Right. Um, so we're not sure about uh, the status of that one, other than that's his proposal going into the next election. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining Podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. On Friday, we shared in, in my weekly newsletter, we shared uh, Representative Chip Roy's uh, exclusive interview with the Daily Caller talking about his uh, personalized care act. And at the time, there wasn't a uh, summary of it available, but now there is available from his uh, house.gov website. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. He wants to, it, the focus seems to be entirely on health savings accounts. And it's something we've talked about a little bit before, Ron, but we'll kind of resummarize it a little bit now. Same question as I asked about the other ones. What was the, what are the health savings accounts and what were their purpose? So their original purpose, and it's not a bad purpose, and it's not a bad thing to have, was for people to be able to take tax-free money and put it away, similar to some of the programs you have to save for your child's tuition, mm-hmm. um, in some ways similar to a 401k where you save for your retirement, is I'm going to take some of my income, either from my check or my employer contributing, we're going to contribute to a special account, and that money is going to be tax-deferred. And as long as I use that money for the purpose that it was designed for, it's tax-free money. Like I said, just like the, some of the savings plans for college tuition, just like 401k. Okay, um, that's not a bad thing to necessarily do. Now, it, it, it's not incredibly widely used, but you think about you know a, a young couple saying, "Hey, we want to have a baby, and we know that we're going to have to pay a 20% coinsurance. Hey, let's stock some money away, and then yeah. when that comes, we can pay for that expense." Mm-hmm. Not bad. Um, and that's really what they were designed to do and what they've done to a large degree. Now, the, the problem with HSAs, when you start thinking about solving our healthcare plans, is for the most part, it's a tool for the middle to upper middle class to wealthy to pay for healthcare without taxation. Mm-hmm. The people who, and, and, and there's some data on this, the people who maybe most could most use the break either can't afford to squirrel the money away and not be able to use it from week to week, or they're in a tax bracket where they really don't pay taxes anyways, and does it really help? Right. Um, there was a report that looked at HSAs and then compared it to, because they don't have direct data on how much each person makes um, who's in an HSA, but they compared it to the census data on the average income in the household in that zip code. It's a pretty good correlation. Only 3% of HSA accounts 
are with are in low income household zip codes. Hmm. So it's not being used by the sort of right. people who probably yep. benefit. And only about ten percent of the people in the country actually have an ASA HSA account. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not this widespread wonderful thing to do. It's not a bad idea. It's just not fixing healthcare. Yeah, I worked for an employer um, before that offered three different plans that we could pick from. They they offered an HMO, a PPO, and then a plan with an HSA. And I I can remember I opt I at the time I opted for the HMO because actually the premium was less than what the premium would have been for the HSA. And I thought that I would get more benefit out of not Right. Even using the HSA, but you're right. the The concept makes sense in a lot mm-hmm. of way. The, the the general concept of saving money makes sense. Um, but right. I would also add that, as you mentioned, with low income, where it's not possible in some cases to save money, and also I, in general, Americans are just not good at saving money anyway. Yeah. Even when you get into some of those higher uh, tax brackets, um, one of the requirements for having an HSA is that you have to have a high deductible health insurance plan. Um, and one of the things that uh, the representative Chip Roy wants to do is to decouple that requirement and allowing you to have HS, allowing people with Medicare, Medicaid, Chip, uh, health share ministries, uh, short term plans, as we talked about before, indemnity plans, to also have HSAs. Is that a good or a neutral or a bad improvement to the HSA program? So the the original desire about the high deduct plan with HSAs is sort of well, you know, if you have these plans that cover everything, why do you need an HSA? Okay, I mean, you you shouldn't right. have a whole lot of extra. Medicaid's a perfect example. Now, I think it's funny decoupling with Medicaid. If you've got Medicaid, you damn sure don't have enough money to, to save right. for an HSA. Yeah, and mm-hmm. like in my state, North Carolina, your copay is three dollars. Yeah. Okay. So it, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And now, probably the same with Chip as well. Right. Same thing with chip. And, and, you know, so I don't think necessarily it's a, it's a problem to decouple. I do think it raises the question, well, you know, if you don't have these sort of high deductible health plans, why do you need an HSA? What's the value of it? It'd be a little bit like, you know, somebody saying, well, um, I know my kid's going to get a full ride to this college because of whatever, but I need to save for college. Well, wait a minute. What, do you, what are the expenses? Right. Now, the other piece, and this is where people don't like this decoupling, is then it's easy to also slide in to allow HSAs to be used for other things, like things that aren't typically covered by health insurance. Or, and there's a debate, I'm not, it's not, I'm not getting into the, the religious side of it, or healthcare ministries. Mm-hmm. Is that really insurance? Right. Should that be allowed to be paid? You know, and, and so I think it's I think the decoupling from high deductible really is around being able to pay for other things, and I think it sounds good. I just have allowed Medicaid and CHIP recipients to to be able to have their own HSA. Look at what I'm doing for these people. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. okay, that's great, but that's like also saying I'm allowing them to buy a Lamborghini. Yeah, you know. Well, all right, you yeah. know. Not going to happen. Well, and it's interesting what you mentioned about the health share ministries too, because I know in their advertising they they and I'm not sure if it's the result of regulation or a lawsuit or maybe a combination of both, but they do have to declare that this is not insurance when they right. when they talk about their their programs. Also with Medicare, um, for the what is it a third or half of of Medicare recipients where they get Medicare Advantage instead of traditional right. Medicare, a lot of those have zero dollar copays anyway. Right. Um, exactly. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that it it looks good on paper, but, um, yeah. 
Uh, continuing on, one of the other things is there's a limit on how much you can contribute to an HSA every year. Uh, Chip Roy wants to increase that limit. Uh, the 2020 limit was $3,550 for individuals, and he wants to increase that to $10,800, uh, and he also wants to increase the family limit as well. Um, same sort of thing, good, neutral, or bad? What do you think? Well, um, in and of itself, these limits you know, aren't aren't bad changing the limits until you sort of understand what the second order of effects could be and what this could be used for. Okay. And I'll, and I'll use, I'll use my company as, as a personal example. So let's say if I was, you know, fairly unscrupulous boss and I said, look, I'm all about me. So I'm going to go ahead and change my um, health insurance plan to um, cover a lot less. And I'm going to, allow an HSA attached to it. And it now it doesn't have to be high deductible anymore. So, but I'm going to really, I'm going to change my, you know, the, every employee's deductible from $2,000 to 10,000. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, and I know that boy, I make enough income that I can chunk that yeah. money away in an HSA to avoid taxes. But my poor employees just got screwed because they, they don't have that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the problems that people have with this is it is largely an advantage, a tax advantage for, upper income people to utilize. And the more you sort of allow this to be a bigger number and with less regulation, you open yourself up for businesses um, taking advantage of it for their upper income people and really harming the, the lower income people. And that's really some of the concerns about is it's one thing to, to have an HSA plan that somebody says, hey, I've got this event and I, you know, I can cover all this money. It's a different way, and, and this is some of the arguments, to create a you know, a, a fairly significant tax jo- dodge for, for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. The next couple things on here that he's got, I, I have to laugh at, because one of them he's got headlined as eliminating regulatory confusion for patients and doctors. And I think that is a, uh, that is a uh, daydream that will never happen. Uh, but it's also the same as the previous one. And he wants to expand what HSAs are allowed to be used on to include direct medical care and health sharing ministries. He's also got thrown in there uh, the fees incurred by those as well as insurance premiums. Why is it that now you can't use an HSA to cover your premium? Oh, because it, it it's designed to pay for the stuff after your insurance doesn't pay, mm-hmm. not for the insurance itself. And again, remember, if 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 you think about how people could use this, again, I'll take my own. Let's say I said, fine, I'm going to leave the insurance as pretty good, but instead of paying for ninety percent of the healthcare costs for my for my company and, and my employees, I'm going to only pay for fifty percent of it. I'm still meeting the requirements. Now everybody just got a big chunk out of their paycheck, but I say, well, wait a minute, don't worry. You can contribute money to an HSA and then turn around and pay for that premium. Mm-hmm. Well, again, if I'm the only one who can afford to do that, or me yeah. and the executives or whatever, what have I really done? How does that really help you know the you know the average person, if right. you will? So it sounds good because we're giving more flexibility to the individual, but when you really peel into it, the only individuals who can take advantage of it probably don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, I'll, I'll throw this in there sort of as a, as an anecdotal thing a little bit is that when I, when I shop at Meyer and I buy stuff from their pharmacy section, it gives me a total at the bottom of, of qualified, uh, health spending expenses that I, that I incurred if I, you know, 
buy something from the pharmacy, either right. a, either a prescription or sometimes it's you know, over the counter stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people? You may or may not know this, uh, but I'll ask anyway. How many people do you think use their HSAs for things like that as opposed to paying for that high deductible section of their health plan? Well, first of all, the the, the data is out there that roughly there's about 30 million accounts, about 10% of the population. The total amount of money in those accounts right now is only $90 billion. And that sounds like a lot, but that's only 2% of all the total healthcare expenditures in the country every year. So um, what we know is that a fair amount of the HSA stuff is fairly low dollar things like prescriptions, like over-the-counter medications. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there are definitely people, in, in a, and I'm not a, plan, a fan of taking away the HSAs. There are definitely people that, like I said, are starting out and they're a young couple and they put some money away to pay for that, you know, the portion of their delivery that they're going to have or that are, you know, doing the right thing, saving for a rainy day. And mm-hmm. then, you know, husband gets a, a knee ACL and wow, that covered my deductible. Isn't that great? Wonderful. Um but it, it really isn't impacting, you know, how care is delivered, et cetera. The other thing people point to is if HSAs were this wonderful thing that were widely utilized, we wouldn't have the problem we have with medical debt right now. Yeah. And we do have a huge problem with medical yep. debt. So um, it, it's just, it's not that big of a deal. I will make a, uh, a little bit of a prediction here, and, and I'll ask you to, to maybe put on your uh, your looking into the future cap or your goggles or whatever you want to call it here in a minute. But I know uh, Donald Trump made a big deal about HSAs in the 2020 election after he made a big deal about repeal and replace in 2016. Um, and I definitely expect to hear that as a, as a as a primary Republican talking point going into this next election, that they, they want to expand and deregulate uh, HSAs. Um, that for some reason they've latched onto it as this is this is the thing that was going to save us right now because it gives quote unquote gives people more choice. Um, and I'm curious what you think of that or if you have any other predictions for healthcare as we go into 2024. Yeah, no, I, I fully expect that this is going to be regardless of the you know the Republican candidate. This will be a talking point, and they need something to talk about healthcare, and they don't have much else right now, unfortunately. And so HSAs, and it, and it plays well with individualism and deregulation and more choice, and and they will try to then couple that with reduce costs, which it won't, um, and that will be sort of their you know their their mantra, um, because it it's easy to turn into a twenty second soundbite and it's hard to unravel, and most people aren't gonna gonna fully understand it. So yeah, I, I think that's absolutely going to be the marching. Um, you know, the marching orders. All right, Ramo, that's about all the time we have for today. Thanks for sitting down with me again. Great. Thank you. Enjoyed it. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Hambly. Have a good week.